Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to get to Hebrews chapter 12. This is the premier chapter that we've all been sort of waiting for because it's almost at the end, and it's also got a lot of good stuff in it. I'm going to read a couple of verses for us from the beginning and at the end of the chapter, and then we'll go over key phrases throughout the whole chapter as we move through the sermon. So turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read us some verses starting with verse 1 from the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then jumping to verse 26. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. If you had to memorize one verse, verse 29 is a pretty good one. It's short and it's cool. Our God is a consuming fire. And just drop the mic and walk away. Just let them figure that one out. Today is the Who Cares About the Super Bowl Sunday. Do you just feel it? Just don't care as much as you did the last couple of years? It's, it's that feeling. It's just kind of there. Uh, this is our penultimate sermon in our sermon series in Hebrews, Witness in Christ in Culture. We're going to finish uh, the book and uh, chapter 13 this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., we will be out the door at 7.10 p.m. So plan on coming here before dinner or after dinner. Uh, have a meaningful service. And then uh, you can uh, go home and start the Lenten season uh, with some intentionality and some thought, consideration on your part about what the season is. Lent is uh, in the church calendar year about 40 days before Easter. Uh, it's plus some days because the Sundays don't count. It starts this Wednesday and we go until Easter. And I don't know how many of you have been thinking about what kind of fast uh, you want to practice for Lent, but it's just a way to sort of uh, tune your focus a little bit to some things that are important to you, some things that God's doing in your life. And it's a way to avail yourself in attentiveness to those matters. And it's not anything crazy or supernatural, but some sort of deprivation or addition in your life that would uh, affect you in a positive way. Uh, so think about what you want to do 
Uh, with that, I've already talked to several of you who have some wonderful ideas, and I know that you're, you're versed in this tradition, so go ahead and think about that, and then come bring that intention to Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday. And then the following Sunday, a week from today, we're going to begin a new series in the book of Mark, and we're going to call it Miracles. The subtitle will be The Empathy and Efficacy of Christ. Okay? Uh, what we want to do, we want to do two things. We want to recognize that the book of Mark has the most number of miracles than any other book in the whole Bible. There are 27 miracles, and uh, hopefully we'll march through the book of Mark. And by Easter, guess which miracle we're going to be talking about? The resurrection of the Christ, of course, right? Um, so we'll be looking at that. But empathy, when God is empathetic, when God himself, the divine begins to care about and engage humanity and her needs, guess what happens? Miracles happen. So the empathy of the divine, divine empathy looks like miracles. And it's also very paradigm-shifting and effective. It accomplished the work for which Christ came. And so we're going to look at the empathy and the efficacy of Christ Uh, The second goal for me is to establish firm in our minds a relationship between this idea of focusing on something, getting clarity, specificity about our mission. And when you're clear about your mission, then it allows to really be broad in how you accomplish that mission. I was watching this buzzer beater of a high school game. Anybody see this game where this team won just this one guy beyond the halfway line, uh, half court line, just chucked the ball with just, you know, femtoseconds left on the clock and swish and went in. Actually, it was a bank shot, uh, but it was completely unconventional. But the mission was to win. And so you can break the mold and do creative things. And I want us to think about that as a church. What's our mission here? Why do we exist? And how do we accomplish that mission? And once that mission is clear, how we do church and be church, sky's the limit. And so I think Jesus modeled that for us in the book of Mark. And so we'll look at that together. Uh, Today, I want us to think about the concept of gratitude. And I don't know where you all are at, but I am really a student and brand new to this idea, at least appreciating this idea of what gratitude is. The chapter ends with this sort of summary word, that if everything in chapters 1 through 12 and all the verses in 12 are true and you believe it and you internalize it, then the end result of who you are and how you live, your state of being, is one of gratitude. And I never thought about this word as a summary, a defining summary of our proper worship response to God, that being one of gratitude. And my guess is that most of us are sort of new in thinking about gratitude in that way. And chapter 12 shows us that God uses primarily suffering, sin, pain in order to discipline, redeem, purify us, to unshackle us, to make us a people where we dwell. We live in a place of gratitude, not just moments of thankfulness, but a state of gratitude. And how powerful 
and how life-changing that can be. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but there's been lots of science and research growing, developing around this idea of gratitude. We have uh, ample evidence that gratitude, people who exercise gratitude, are physically healthier, they are emotionally happier, they are mentally more stable, and there's a kind of wholeness in that they are fully engaged and attentive and present in their life. They experience what the scriptures would call joy in their life. And it has profound impact. And uh, just, um, you know, just uh, to give you an early hook for this topic, you know, I think it's really important that we know how to say thank you, for example. One small facet of this idea of gratitude. But this idea of saying thank you, because on some deep level we know we're not just the byproduct of a blind evolutionary process that was somehow happening in this fully 100% materialistic universe. That just doesn't seem to be the case intuitively for me. For me, there is an author to the process. There's an there's a there's a uh, uh, intent of an intelligent being behind all scientific processes that have made us come about to this day today. And there is a sense that I'm on the receiving end of things I don't deserve, I have not asked for, I have not earned. And so I know that it is good for me to say thank you. But if I'm not a believer in God or a follower of Christ, I I think the philosophical and apologetic question remains for the atheist and others, to whom do you say thank you? Now, science, even science itself, is telling us that it's good to say thank you, that it has physical benefits and mental and psychological, emotional, social benefits to say thank you, that even from an evolutionary standpoint, it's a positive thing. It's, it's actually quite a proven thing that when we learn how to be thankful as a state, we like people better, we like ourselves better, our life is sort of in order, in alignment. And I think it just makes sense, it's rational to believe that there is intent and authorship behind everything that we see. And so we say thank you to somebody, to something. And I'd like you to keep that uh, in the back of your mind as we go through some of these thoughts today. I found some wonderful resources on this idea of gratitude that's not in the sermon. And if you want those, you know, feel free to ask me for them. I have a long list, just pages of uh, great stuff material on uh, gratitude from psychology to uh, physiology. It's been a a learning experience for me. Today, we're going to ask the question, where is gratitude? Because it's almost like a place. You got to get there. And then uh, how do we get there? First, where is gratitude? And we begin with verse 28 and 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show 
gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now, verse 28, 29, it's hearkening back to the uh, temporary uh, stand-in constructs that God himself through man put into place, the sacrificial system with animals and the shedding of animal blood, the whole system of laws and rules and regulations about how to properly be God's people and relate to him. All of those are temporary stand-in constructs that no longer are applicable because Christ has come and has shed his own blood. And rather than goodness or morality, works, which actually are antithetical to a relationship with God, we now trust Christ for his work. And that's the paradigm shift, and it's hearkening back to that. That those things were shaken, those, those temporary constructs were shaken, and those things fell away. And what remains is eternal and that's Christ, right? And not the construct, but the thing that the construct was pointing to. And then you see a reference to the sacrificial system where it says God is a consuming fire. And what he consumes, what he's able to receive as our offering are no longer dead works, but thanksgiving, gratitude for Christ's work. Do you see that? Verse 28 to 29. And our gratitude is what is acceptable service. And it comes with it the spirit of the law and not just the law that internally we have reverence and awe, not out of fear of punishment, but because of the free gift of grace that we have received through Christ. And that God readily receives. And all of the works and the sacrificial system and the law that we were taught to keep, all that is pointing to people who are personifying, exemplifying, internalizing, and embodying this whole concept that summarized as gratitude. One word to describe it all right here. Gratitude. Um, This is the end picture of what a human being is meant to be like. It's the human being's final form, its final iteration, is one who is in a place of gratitude. And once in a while, you have one trait that allows you to look through that trait and to see the whole of the person. How do you know, how do you measure the maturity of a person in terms of God's redemptive work in their life, their character. By what one trait might you know? And I think this is implying that gratitude is such a trait. It's a unique way to think about how you are doing. Where are you in relation to gratitude? Your proximity to this place we're calling gratitude. Through this window, we can glimpse the whole. Uh, some other uh, ways of explaining this idea of gratitude, verse 2, we have the words faith and joy, and we'll talk about that. We'll unpack that. Uh, we have verse 11, we have joyful again, and we have the phrase peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
that when we're not living in this place of gratitude, we don't have peace in our hearts. There's angst and tension. Because the alternative to gratitude is what? Frustration and entitlement and feeling injustice and like you're owed. I mean, if you live in that state, you're a bitter, angry person. That's the opposite of the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Not righteous because you're self-righteous, but because things are right. There's peace. Uh, Verse 15 sort of uh, hints at this, but uh, the author has been unpacking this idea of the grace of God, that this is somehow at the core of our understanding of what grace is. I mean, of what gratitude is. Um, I came across amazing research uh, sources, resources on this idea of gratitude. The first person I want to quote is a man named uh, David Steindl Steindl Rast. Uh, He is a Benedictine monk, and uh, he's recently been made popular through his TED Talk on gratitude. He's sort of become the uh, country's guru on gratitude, and his talk has over 4 million views. So lots of uh, people tuning into what he has to say. And he has this one little helpful bit I want to summarize for us. He talks about the difference between gratitude, gratefulness, and thanksgiving. And he says this, that gratefulness is when you have a feeling and it's filling up with joy inside of you, but it's so new and different and still internal and fresh to you that it's yet unarticulated. That's what he calls gratefulness. You feel that. The second thing is thanksgiving. And he says, when that filling up of your heart spills over in expression, that's called thanksgiving. Gratitude, then, is your final state, he says. It's when you are in a place of gratitude. It's no longer just a passing temporary feeling. It's no longer dependent on external stimulation. It's no longer just you verbally or with your actions expressing it, but it's a state of being, a place of gratitude. Okay, now that's helpful. There's some information there. Give us some understanding. Uh, Another uh, quote I found that I thought was helpful is from Melody Beastie. She's an author, and she says this. Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. Now, you have to think about each of these sentences and see in your own mind if it's true. And I did this, and uh, it's true for me. Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. And I think that's true, that if I'm not in a place of gratitude, I'm missing out on huge chunks of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. And I think that's true, too. It turns denial into acceptance. I think that's true, that I can initially be at a place of denial, but as I think about the fuller picture and come to a place of gratitude, I can accept the things that are before me. Chaos into order. That's a deeper one still. You think about that. I checked yes on that one. Confusion to clarity. It can turn a meal into a feast, a house into a home, a stranger into a friend. And you put all of sort of her little 
sentences together and you realize, you know, if I can have gratitude in the midst of denial or chaos or confusion or a meal or a house or a stranger, then I can experience the other side of gratitude and live a fuller life. So I'm going to say yes to this quote. It's true. The next person, we're getting progressively more uh, deep, is Thomas Merton. He's also a monk. He's a a Trappist monk. Uh, Trappist monk? Yes, Trappist. Trappist are different, aren't they? They swing. Yes. Thomas Merton was not in the circus. He says this, To be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything he has given us. And he has given us everything. Every breath we draw is a gift of his love. Every moment of existence is a grace, for it brings with it immense graces from him. Now check this out. Gratitude, therefore, takes nothing for granted, is never unresponsive, is constantly awakening to new wonder and to praise of the goodness of God. For the grateful person knows that God is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. And that is what makes all the difference. I really like this because it pertains to our series. Because I've been asking us to bear witness to these truths about Christ. Is God good? Is there really a, a, a way outside of our works by which we can be justified before God, before each other, and before ourselves? Is there a way? And uh, he says, yes, there is. And God wants you to experience and bear witness yourself so that from a place of genuine gratefulness, you can say thank you. There's an invitation there. So I think that's really deep. And then uh, we have G.K. Chesterton. Uh, He's a mentor of C.S. Lewis. And if you like C.S. Lewis as a Christian thinker, uh, you have G.K. Chesterton for thank for that. Uh, speaker, author, apologist. He, sort of, he was sort of like the Ravi Zacharias of his time. He says this, I would, maintain that thanks, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. There's the idea of reverence and awe in relation to gratitude. And then we have finally one of my favorite authors, and he really unpacks this for us, M. Scott Peck. And this uh, book that I'm quoting uh, him from is The Road Less Traveled and Beyond. It's the book he wrote after he became a Christian. So he doesn't start out as a Buddhist in this book, but he's fully a believer of Christ in this book. And he has this to say about gratitude. It is easy to take a lot for granted, including good luck and unexpected gifts in this life. Indeed, in this remarkably secular age, we are actually encouraged to think in terms of luck, as if good fortune has no more meaning than a roll of the dice. We imagine everything to be a matter of mere accident, or hence, assuming that good luck and bad luck are equal, that they balance out and add up to zero or nothing. This attitude easily leads to the philosophy of despair called nihilism, derived from nihil, the Latin word for nothing. When it is brought to its logical conclusion, nihilism ultimately holds that there is nothing of any worth. Yet there is another way to look at good luck and unexpected gifts. This theory posits a superhuman giver, God, who likes to give gifts to human creatures because he particularly loves us. 
Whether this God has anything to do with the downpours in our lives is uncertain, although in retrospect they often seem to have been blessings in disguise. As to those things that are recognizable gifts, some of us see a pattern of beneficence to them far greater and more constant than any pattern of misfortune. He's saying that grace outweighs the bad. For this beneficent person of giving, gift-giving, we have a name, grace. If something is earned, it is not a true gift. Grace, however, is unearned. It is free. It is gratis. gratis. The word grace or gratis and gratitude flow into one another. If you perceive grace, you will naturally feel grateful. In my experience, the ability to appreciate pleasant surprises as gifts tends to be good for one's mental health. Those who perceive grace in the world are more likely to be grateful than those who don't. And grateful people are more likely to be happy than ungrateful ones. They are also more likely to make others happy feeling given to by the world. They feel predisposed to give back to the world. Why do some people have such obviously grateful hearts while others have distinctly ungrateful ones? And why do still others fall in between, seemingly relatively bland in both their gratitude and their resentments? A grateful person, a grateful heart is a mysterious thing. Indeed, it is my belief that a grateful heart is itself a gift. In other words, the capacity to appreciate gifts is a gift. It is also the greatest blessing a human being may possess. Indeed, how one responds to adversity and good or bad luck may be one of the truest measures of our ability to grow into gratefulness. There are some rich uh, truths in this quote here. A couple of things I want to highlight. One, he believes that our world isn't just chaos, that good luck and bad luck are not just coming from the same non-source, but that there is a source of good, and there is more good in your life and in the world, because most of even what you would call bad turns out to be blessings in disguise, God's redemptive work through it. You're not thankful for it, but you're thankful for the God who is using it in your life. And he asks you to bear witness to that, to experience that grace personally and to say thank you. And if gratitude, getting to this place of gratitude is sort of our final form, our resting place, that capacity to reach that place of gratitude is itself a gift that you ought to be thankful for. Even before you get there, you say, thank you, God, that I'm on my way. That such a place exists, and I have consciousness of such a place, and there is something pulling me towards that place. Thank you, God, for that. And your ability to recognize the gift and the ability to appreciate the gift is one of the truest measures of who we are as human beings. And so this is an opportunity then for you to assess your own self, heart. Are you a grateful person? How close are you to this place of gratitude? What would others say about you? How would they characterize you? Who are you? What are you like? Is there gratitude in your heart? Do you live there? Are you more cynical or critical or resentful? 
I'm going to give you uh, my definition of gratitude. Humility, which allows one to be thankful for grace past, perceive grace in the moment, and rely on grace that is sure to come, and expresses itself in thanksgiving, that's retrospective, joy, that's the present, and faith, that's trust, that's the future. So there is an appreciation for the past. Retrospectively, you thank God because you see God clearly retrospectively. In the present moment, you have joy instead of anxiety and you're able to be present. And then for the future, you have faith, trust that more grace is coming, proven by the evidence of your retrospective take on your past. The past is an indication of the future. And wrapping, containing it all is this kind of humility because you recognize that you are not your own person, that you, everything that's true and good about you has a source that's outside of you. And for that, you give thanks. You acknowledge that you are by grace, that you live and move and have your being by grace. Every work even you're able to accomplish, every due diligence Every I you've dotted, every T you've crossed, all that by grace. And you have a humility about that. A couple of clarifications about gratitude. The first is that I have uh, known people, myself included, who can have humble moments. Humble, but they're not filled with thanksgiving. They're not filled with joy. There's a kind of uh, low opinion they have of themselves, but they're not necessarily trusting God for the future or saying thank you or fill the joy. But there's a kind of self-loathing and really a self-centeredness in their humility. So it can be a little bit wonky. Uh, second clarification is that the retrospective, the hindsight, when you look back on your life, you tend to see grace. The retrospective tends to reveal grace, but the present and the future is often wrought with anxiety and fears, and it obscures the grace that is present in the moment and overemphasizes human contribution and chance for the future. That somehow looking back, we see God's hand. But in the moment and in the future, it's easier to either be anxious or to overemphasize your own contribution in the matter. Why is that so? I'm not sure. Um, And then the uh, the alternatives to uh, grace and gratitude and humility are found in verse 15. It says, root of bitterness that leads to trouble. And then verse 16 mentions the immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. That is, he had no thankfulness, he had no joy, he had no faith for the future. He sort of fell into short-term survivalistic scarcity decision-making thinking. And he sold his birthright. Why? Because he doesn't understand that it was by God's grace that brought him to this present moment and that God will provide into the future. So having none of that perspective of past and future, he sold his birthright for a single meal. And then he was bitter about it and it led to trouble. So that's verse 15 and verse 16, giving us an example of one who is not in a place of gratitude. I would ask you to bear witness at this time. 
Is gratitude a good thing? Do you believe it's a universally good thing? Do you believe that maybe even somehow we were made by the giver of all good gifts and part of our core identity is to learn how to say thank you for all that we are? Do you think that's, there's some truth to that? I think there is. Even if you don't believe in God, I think you know you're supposed to say thank you for your own progress as a human being. And then I would ask the question, what is, the secular, what is a secular framework that allows for gr- gratitude to be desirable or even possible? What secular framework can you present to me that would make room, that would explain this innate, undeniable need we have to say thank you? And I've done some research on this and I can't find one. I think until you acknowledge author and intent, that's what Hebrews 12 starts with, that Jesus is the author and perfecter. Until we start with the author and intent, intent to make us perfect, we don't know how to fit thank you into our framework. And then another sort of anecdotal appeal here, do you like people who are humble or arrogant better? Do you like people who say thank you or who say screw you? Just, these are tricky questions. You probably have a hard time choosing. <laughs> do you like people filled with joy or bitterness? Do you like people who are anxious and fearful or people who have faith? Just anecdotally, yourself, what do you think? Bear witness. And then the question is, how do we get there? If these things are all good things, how do we get there? Going back to Scott Peck, let me quote this one section one more time. A grateful heart is a mysterious thing. Indeed, it is my belief that a grateful person, grateful heart is itself a gift. In other words, the capacity to appreciate gifts is a gift. It is also the greatest blessing a human being may possess. Indeed, how one responds to adversity and good or bad luck may be one of the truest measures of our ability to grow into gratefulness. So the question is, how do we get there? And M. Scott Peck seems to say it's a process. And this process involves adversity, good and bad luck, and our responses to them. Elsewhere in his book that I didn't quote, he says uh, that he believes there is a genetic disposition and choice, nature and nurture involved in this process. That some people are more predisposed innately to say thank you. And some people are more critical and judgmental rather than thankful. Is this true? I think Hebrews says it is. It has these phrases I want to point out. Verse 1, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. Verse 3, not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, resist it to the point of shedding blood. Verse 5, the discipline of the Lord and then reproved by him. Verse 6, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he scourges every son. Verse 5 to 11 uses the word discipline nine times. Verse 26, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. Verse 27, the removing of those things which can be shaken so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28 to 29, therefore, since we have received, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. There's this sense as you read through these verses and these key phrases that the self, we are born by grace, that we made us without, God made us without us being asked to be made. 
that even the very decision for us to exist and then giving us the gift of consciousness so that we can enjoy life and have the opportunity to say thank you to the great life giver, that whole deal starts with us being made in the image of God. And somehow in life, through the fall, we have all of this junk just encrusted over us. And so Paul, I mean the author, begins with, let us lay aside this encumbrance And we're tangled up in this thing that uh, the author calls sin. And then all throughout, there's a kind of resistance to this alternate false self that we are tempted to be. And so we are encouraged to not lose heart. And we're supposed to fight it even to the point of shedding blood. We're supposed to uh, appreciate, welcome the discipline of God, which is uh, very much uh, dynamic in the way God relates to us. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, it says, God's shaken us so that the things that are eternal can stand, so that there's a kind of separation between the wheat and the chaff, the good and the bad, the things that we are and the things that we are falsely have been. So there's a kind of purification process, and the way that happens is by hardship, by suffering, by pain. And our response to it is what shapes us and purifies us to a place where we are more grateful. That's the whole sort of one way to think about life. The story of life is God shaking us down, disciplining us, helping us to resist this encumbrance and this entanglement until we get to a place of gratitude. I was thinking about what stories can I tell about this And I thought of actually lots of stories, but 100% of those stories were stories of me not being thankful, missing out on the moment because I wasn't grateful. And I want to just tell this story that happened between the leadership team and I uh, two years ago. And I got to tell you, it's very raw for me still. So if you don't retell that story to me, that would be great. You could retell it to each other. Lots of you like to preach my sermons back to me. This one, it's still a little raw, too soon. And I cringe. Just, I was telling this sermon to Susie last night, and I was telling her this story, and I just was cringing. I just I swallowed before I told the story. But uh, it was this. The leadership team worked really hard two years ago, uh, as they do this day, but they worked really hard to get Susie and I and the family situated housing-wise, because we felt like really we were floating and they wanted us to root down and get settled and they also didn't want to be in the house-owning business and be my landlord and all that. So the parsonage situation was sort of tank. It was an entanglement. It was an encumbrance to uh, the ministry here. And uh, per their call to help uh, call me, they were wanting to figure this out and they worked really hard at it because they were mindful of their own integrity and their job as a leadership team to represent the congregation, also loving on me and all that stuff and the legalities of it and logistics. And they worked really hard. And at the end of that year, uh, when I was being reviewed, I had to answer this one question, which said, do you feel supported by the leadership team? And uh, I was so sort of, I think, suspicious and uh, worried and not super happy about the, uh, the whole process, the way we untangle the parsonage situation. And I was not able to experience the fullness of love there. And so I wasn't very thankful and I didn't feel supported. I just felt like I was on the end of some 
untangling project, but not on the end of receiving end of love. So I said, no, I don't feel supported. And I think it hurt their feelings. And we've debriefed about it since. But I think about that whole year. And I just feel so upset with myself for not being trusting, not having faith, not having joy in the moment, not looking back and saying thank you. And I just cringe. I just cringe at myself. And I, wanna, I wish I can go back and just be cool and open and warm through it and say thank you. I wish I could do that. And I thought of dozens of stories like this where I just cringe at myself. And it gave me further evidence that I want to get to this place of gratitude. And I'm sure if you thought about it for a second, you'd have cringeworthy memories yourself. Moments you've missed. Relationships you harmed because you were not in this place. Two application points. One, the first is stay. So the other set of exhortations in this passage is endure, resist, afterwards, train, strengthen, shaken. It's give the author and perfecter of your faith time and process to work in your life. Whatever hard thing you're experiencing, there's a purpose behind it. There's an author and there's intent to perfect you, to complete you, to make you whole the way you were meant to be. So stay in it. It's not meaningless. It is if it's just bad luck. But it's not just bad luck. There's a good God behind it, and there's reason to stay in it. And then second application is stay focused. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The focus you should have is not on external things which will be shaken, and it will fall away, but it's on the eternal things, the things that cannot be shaken. That's sort of who you are, the work, the precious work that God is doing in you, as First Peter talks about. Your precious cornerstones. And God is doing that precious work. I want to uh, invite you to do a Google search when you have time. Search regrets of the dying. And you'll get a really clear picture of what you ought to be focused on while you are living. Conclude here. Read this verse. Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus found joy and gratitude even on the cross. And he did that for us, that we might find hope and endure through this life. And not only to endure, but endure onto this place of gratitude. Amen.